The first weekend of October, something happened that probably escaped many of your notices. Uh, probably really didn't matter to you unless you were of my generation or maybe a little older. Uh, but on the first Saturday of October, for the first time in 60 years in American history, a Saturday morning came and there were no cartoons on any of the major networks. See, it was the first time cartoons were not there. And for somebody like me that grew up in the late 60s and early 70s, that's hard to believe. Hard to believe that, that all of those days of cartoons are now over. And, you know, those of you that grew up without, with cable and all the channels, that, that didn't mean anything to you. But for kids in my generation, cartoons on Saturday morning were the greatest thing in the whole world. I, I mean, uh, at one time, Saturday morning cartoons had over 20 million people watching it each Saturday. It was a huge programming uh, push for the networks and so kids I can remember being a kid in the early 70s and getting a TV guide because you wanted to see uh, what was going to be on and what new shows were coming on and what new cartoons were coming on I can remember uh, getting up early which is unheard of for an elementary age kid or a uh, preschool kid getting up early because you didn't want to miss you couldn't DVR it or watch it later you had to watch it then so we got up to watch Saturday morning cartoons. It became a tradition. It became a routine for many of us my age. And that was just part of your Saturday mornings. And to think that those things are gone, to think that they no longer have a viewership is kind of sad. Uh, for me, probably the greatest cartoon of that generation, probably uh, the most popular cartoon had to be Scooby-Doo. Now, any of you guys Scooby-Doo fans, uh, you grew up, you, in my generation, you had to watch Scooby-Doo. It just, uh, that, was, that was the epitome of uh, popularity when it came to cartoons. I mean, they were so popular. I want you to think about this. Scooby-Doo was a cartoon, and it was so popular, they had celebrity guests on, okay? A cartoon had celebrity guests on. You could turn... And there might be the Jackson 5 one Saturday morning or, or the Harlem Globetrotters. They came back several times. And, uh, you know, Don Knotts was on it. I mean, Don Knotts would show up on uh, the, the Scooby-Doo show. And it was, just, it was just a great show to watch. I loved watching them hop into that mystery machine and go and try to solve what, whatever crazy mystery was involved at the local library or some broken-down mansion. It seemed like everywhere they were, there was an old abandoned amusement park that was haunted. And they would have have to go solve the mystery and uh it was just great and and for me there was nothing better than sitting there big glass of chocolate milk and donuts or cereal or whatever it is that we got to eat since our parents weren't awake yet and you're sitting there and you're watching it and uh, waiting till the end when all of a sudden it all came together and they would capture the bad guy and you know what would happen if you were a Scooby-Doo fan. They would have him tied up, and uh, he'd have some monster mask on. And one of the guys in the, the mystery machine, you know, usually Fred or sometimes Thelma, because she was a smart one, and they would get it, and they would t rip off his mask. And when they ripped off his mask, there was always that, that shock, that, you know, rut row. You know, it was just not knowing what was going to happen. And because it was always like, What? It's Mr. Jenkins, you know, and so it was always the, the local guy that everybody knew. And, and, but we loved it, and I think my love of that kind of mystery and the love that it gave me as a kid led me into loving mysteries even to this day. I, I, it, it led me into books, and when I began to read books and began to read books for fun, I began to read mysteries. Because I like solving mysteries, and my favorite novels today are all mysteries. John Grisham and 
Michael Crichton and James Patterson and things like that that you can read and, and follow a mystery. And I think if most of us were honest this morning in the room, we would say, or you might admit, that we like mysteries. I mean, somebody likes mysteries. Probably the most popular shows on TV, the most popular movies are all mysteries. They're all trying to solve a, a puzzle, solve a crime, solve a situation or a circumstance. And so somebody likes mysteries. But I think if we had to be honest all of us, including myself, we really don't like mysteries as much as we like solving mysteries. Because you see, there's a difference. Just like I tell people when I go fishing, there's a difference between liking to fish and liking to catch fish. Okay, everybody likes to go and catch fish, but not everybody likes to go and fish. Uh, Fish means sometimes you don't catch, but I enjoy doing that. Everybody says they like mysteries, but not everybody does because most of us really, in the reality of it is, we like solving mysteries. We like having mysteries given the answer. We like that reveal part. It's what keeps us up at night when we're reading a book and we say, I can't go to bed because I've got to read one more uh, page or one more chapter. I've got to find out what happens. It's why we hang around to watch the second part. We don't like the, uh, you know, the slow fade to next week, that, that old Batman, same bat time, same bat channel, uh, cliffhanger kind of thing. We want to know what's going on. That's why you get so frustrated on some of these movies that were one book and they've made it three movies. And so you go to the movie and it ends right in the middle and you don't want to have to wait until the next movie comes out. You want to know what happens because all of us in our lives, we like to have everything under control. We, we like to have the mystery solved. This morning in our passage, Paul's going to talk about a mystery that's been solved. And it's a mystery that, that is so mysterious that even today, 2,000 years after it was solved, we still struggle with it. Even after there's been a reveal, even after the mask has come off, even after all of the truths, the cards have been laid on the table, most of us in the church this morning struggle with grasping the weight and the nature of this mystery. It's that big a deal. And so here where we are in our study of the book of Ephesians, we're starting in Ephesians chapter 3. We're in the 12th part of our series in the book of Ephesians. Paul is going to begin to break down this mystery that's already been revealed, but yet you and I are struggling to put it together. Have you ever read a book like that where you get to the end or, or you get to the end of a show and they show you the mystery, but you still just can't grasp it? You go home and you think, that can't be it. There had to be somebody else. There had to be something else. That's where we are in the church today. And so Paul's going to try to help us not only grapple with this mystery, but, but allow it to become a part of us, allow it to lead us and allow it to guide us. He calls it the great mystery. So if you have Bible, Ephesians chapter 3, and I think I've given you some of the passages there in your order of worship that you can follow along. And really, uh, this is a... a part one of two and and next week will follow and tag right along with this but but i wanted to find a good breaking point so we're just going to go through verse six this morning um let's start in verse one for this reason i paul the prisoner of christ jesus for the sake of you gentiles for surely you have heard about the administration of god's grace that was given to me for you now now as we read that it's easy to get lost in some of these passages. It's easy to read it at first reading and, and just gloss over what the truth is. And that's why it's still such a mystery to us that Paul's about to explain. Now, let me 
go back and help you remember, those of you that have been with us, those of you have been studying or if you studied Paul's writing, you know that Paul has what I call spiritual ADD, okay? Uh, Paul, in his writing, and we saw it in chapter 1. Remember chapter 1? He says, I, Paul, a prisoner of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I send you my blessings. And then all of a sudden, in the middle there, he stopped his thought, and he went over to something else. And matter of fact, it, it was verses 2 through 13 in chapter 1. It was lo- one long sentence in the Greek language. It was like a doxology, we called it. Well, he does that again here at the start of chapter 3. You see, at the end of verse 1, most of your translations has a little dash. doesn't have a semicolon, doesn't have a, uh, you know, a period. It has a dash because what happens is Paul is getting in to explaining what he just talked about. And as he's explaining, he, he begins to think, maybe you didn't grasp what I just explained. As he's about to go into this explanation, about to, to lead a message to the church, he says, now time out. Maybe you didn't grasp the mystery that I just gave you at the end of chapter 2. Uh, and so I'm going to re-explain it. I'm going to go more in depth to help you not just know it out here, but to know it in here. And, uh, you know, most of us understand what that's like as a preacher. I can understand chasing rabbits and, you know, you come up and you got all this stuff that you want to say. Paul in chasing rabbits is giving us some very deep truth that I think can make a difference in your life this morning. And so don't, don't bypass that, but just understand that's where he goes. As a matter of fact, this whole passage this week and next week is, is off. You know, it, it goes back to what he's talking about, but it's a little side note. It's a sidebar. He doesn't pick up his train of thought from verse 1 until verse 14 again. So this is a parenthesis side note that I think is very important. What does he say? He says, for this reason. Now, when you see for this reason, it's the same thing as therefore. For this reason. Why? Why is he doing this? Why is he a prisoner of Jesus Christ? And he just, all that he talked about at the end of chapter 2, our last two weeks of message, and I won't review them. You can go back and listen to them. Uh, but basically, why is he so excited about this? Because now he has introduced to us what the church is. Paul says, because of all of that, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, it's easy to rush past that as well because we know Paul is in jail. Paul's in Rome when he's writing this book of Ephesus, and so it's easy to say, well, he's a prisoner because of Jesus. That's not what he said. He didn't say, I'm a prisoner because of Jesus. He didn't say, I'm a prisoner of Rome or I'm a prisoner of Caesar. What does he say? I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Not a prisoner for, not a prisoner to Jesus Christ, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So what he's saying there is that he is held captive for some reason by Christ. See, Paul's wanting us to understand. Now, this is building on each other. He's saying, because of all that stuff, I just told you, I am a captive of Jesus Christ. I am held by what happened to me on that road to Damascus. That moment I discovered grace, that moment my life changed, it captured me. And because I am captured, I am compelled to act out of how I was captured. He said, I'm a prisoner of. Why? He says, why am I this way? For you. I'm a prisoner for the Gentiles. The whole reason that I'm compelled, the whole reason that I'm bound to to Jesus Christ is for your sake. And so everyone in this room, he's talking about you in verse 1. He says, it is for your sake, Gentiles. I am now a prisoner because of you. Now look what he says in verse 2. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now that word administration in some of your translations says stewardship. What's Paul saying here? He is saying that I have been entrusted. I have been made steward of God's grace 
to those that are non-Jewish. Now, for us, this doesn't resonate with the same power as it did to the first century church member in Ephesus or around Ephesus. See, what Paul is driving at in verses 1 and 2, and it sets the stage for what he's about to say, is he says, because of the church, because we are all together, because the walls have come down, because you now have a place to belong, because you'll never be alone anymore, I am a prisoner to the message of the cross. And what is the message of the cross? Grace and salvation, but not just salvation for the Jew, salvation for everybody. See, Paul's been given a task. And what was his task? To take Jesus Christ's message outside the boxes. To expand the horizon. To look beyond where everyone else, all of those in the early church, and and James and Peter and those guys in Jerusalem, they were reaching out, but they were reaching out to the other Jews. And now all of a sudden, Paul comes along and begins to say, listen, God has revealed something to me that was a mystery before, and that something is that everybody can be saved. And he said, that message so captures me that it's like I'm a prisoner to it. And I am compelled to administer. I'm compelled to be a steward, to give. And we're going to learn next week, he follows up later on, that that gift of stewardship is now given to you. You are now a steward of God's grace for those around you. You see, you are now the instrument of God's grace to the people around you at work and the people at school that are hurting, that are in need, that are in darkness. They are looking for an administrator, and it's you. What Paul is building on here is not just the idea of grace, but he's going to talk about the mystery of that grace. And so that sets us up for for verse 3. Look what he says. That grace that was given to me, that is the mystery, and there's that word, the mystery made known to me by revelation. God opened my eyes. As I have already written about briefly, he wrote about some in verse 1. In reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, second time he uses it here. Paul likes that word. He uses it seven times in our book of Ephesians. He uses it eight times in his other letters. But the word mystery there is not the way that we use mystery. It holds some of the same meaning. But the word mystery there is basically the idea of something that God revealed pieces of early on. God revealed pieces of, he revealed glimpses of, but it is now being fully revealed. And so he calls it a mystery. Matter of fact, he calls it one of the greatest mysteries. And and the mystery of that, that he's trying to explain, is how God's grace is available to everybody. See, that would have been a crazy thought to the early church been a crazy thought to the jewish followers this mystery it's about how salvation is now available for you and i you see there were glimpses of this story in the old testament you saw little bits and pieces of god's love and god's grace for all but really you couldn't see it until jesus died on the cross and when jesus was dead buried and resurrected all of a sudden the mystery was revealed it was as if the mask came off But yet some people still didn't get it. And so God sent Paul to tell the the world, really, to begin the early church, that it's the gospel's for everybody. And here's what makes it a mystery. That was God's plan all along. 
And I don't want you to lose this. I want you to grab this. Because people say, how does the Old Testament fit in with the New Testament? How does the Old tie in? Because God's plan from the foundations of the earth was that all men might be saved. God didn't come at the early church when Paul had this road to Damascus experience and then the Macedonian call and all of a sudden say, look, this is plan B. I'm also going to reach the Gentiles. When God created the covenant with Abraham and in Genesis chapter 12, God had a plan that was still a mystery, it was still clouded, but that plan was that all men receive salvation. See, God's heart is that all men be saved. Now, the means to that salvation is accepting his son's death on the cross. But that was always a part of the plan. Even during the Old Testament. You see, the Old Testament, I've heard it said, is God's glory uh, concealed. God's glory uh, diminished. The New Testament is God's glory and God's plan revealed. God's mystery is revealed. All of a sudden, this, this gospel, this plan, this, this part of being a part of God's kingdom is available to everybody. And Paul says, it's wide open. It's fully revealed. It's always been God's plan to bring the two groups into one. Not that the Gentiles would have to join the Jews and be like them, or the Jews would have to be like the Gentiles, but that they would both come together to form one new group. And that group is the church. And that's the mystery Paul is talking about. How in the world did God have all this plan figured out? That it would come together so that Jews that had been a part of the covenant forever and Gentiles that were not could both have access to the Father. And not only have access, but be connected as a part of a body. I want you to think about church for a minute. It's crazy how the church works. Crazy how we come together. Tell me how this makes sense in any other business, any other world. That people that are polar opposites, that, that see things so differently, that, that are so different in their worldviews or in their, their attitudes or in their cultures can come together in one place and worship the same God together. Be unified. How does that work? It's a mystery. It's grace. It's the mystery that he's trying to reveal. How, let me put it in this week's perspective. How many of you, how is it possible that those that were so polarized on Tuesday after the election or Wednesday after the election, no matter which side you voted, there was such a polarization. But across this country this morning, there are people that were very happy on Wednesday and people that were very sad and people that were angry and they're all coming together in the name of Jesus Christ and worshiping him. How does that happen? It's the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the mystery of taking what was two or three or four and making it one. It's like I told you last week. What that tells us is that not only do we belong and not only are we a part, but we now have a message. And that message is the mystery has been revealed and you're a part of it. So that as I said last week, you could go to a home Bible study in Brazil. You could go to a home church in the Ukraine. You could go to a Coptic church this morning in Syria or Iraq where they're scared to death for their lives. And if their pastor pulls out the word of God and begins to preach Jesus Christ, you belong. Because you're a part of it. They say, explain that. I can't because Paul says it's a mystery. 
And that mystery is being revealed in our lives every day. You see, now you as a Christian and a receiver of grace become a part of that mystery. And whether or not it's a mystery to the world is up to you. Whether or not you confuse the world, whether or not you you cloud the world. You see, the world is looking at you to solve the mystery of their lives that they can't explain. They're waiting for the big reveal. And Paul says, I've already solved it. Now all I need you to do is go and tell everybody. Paul was so excited about this. It was so revolutionary. It was so mysterious that he invented three separate words to describe it. Verse 6, Paul takes three words that don't exist anywhere else in the New Testament, nowhere else in the Greek language, and he creates them to try to help the early church understand this mystery and how it comes together. Look what he says in verse 6. For this mystery is that through the Gospels the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. We call that joint heirs, joint together. Some of your versions say fellow heirs. See, Paul, was, this was so important to him. He's so wanted to underscore it that here he is putting words together that you're joint together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. These three words that we are now joint heirs. You know, he's told us that we're all members of the same family. We all get the same thing. Those that have been Christians for all your life and those that have just become Christians, we get the same inheritance, the kingdom of God, abundant living. How does that work? Grace. Paul says you are joint together, but you are also members together of one body. That members together, fellowship together. That now it doesn't matter what your color is or your creed is or Jews or Gentiles because we no longer are distinguished by what we were. You see, when I come in here... You know, and this is the problem in the church today. We are so strong about what divides us instead of proclaiming what unites us. We so want to tell people why we are different. Why not tell each other why we are the same? Instead of when people come to visit us, we, you know, we put on our wall. We're a King James only, dispensational, baptism, Baptist, Episcopal. I, I love some of those churches, you know, that, that just list it all. You know, we're a Baptist, Episcopal, Methodist, you know, church of the new beginnings. And you want to go, it's all right there. You know who they are, right? But see, all of those things do is tell people what divides us. Why not say, when they say, what's your church about? We're about Jesus. What do you believe? We believe Jesus. We believe Jesus, dead, buried, resurrected, changed life. And by faith, you can have it too. Every one of us in this room disagrees on certain parts of theology. Some of you believe that Jesus is coming one way. Some of you believe, even in Ephesians, when we're Ephesians 1, some of you believe that God knew before the foundations of the earth and God chose. Some of you believe God chose you. Some of you believe you chose God. None of that matters. You know what matters? is what unifies us. You know what unifies us, Paul says? Grace. That we all needed it and it didn't have anything to do with us and we all receive it by faith. Paul says that's a mystery. And it's been revealed. Now when you read that at first, that all doesn't jump out. Paul's going to build on it next week because Paul's going to say, look, if this mystery has been revealed, here's the job of the church. Here's what you do with the mystery. It's time for you to jump in the mystery machine and go and take it outside the walls. But the question for us this morning as I wrestled with this passage and I found a stopping zone there is I thought, what does that mean for me and you today? 
how does this how does this relate as a preacher that's where we want you know what is this going to do for me this week on tuesday how is me understanding this mystery or knowing that there is a mystery and knowing that paul revealed it going to get me through so i i want you to think about a couple things that just jumped out at me first of all the thing that was the most prevalent in understanding this is that life is a mystery And, and we struggle with that As much as I said we like mystery, we don't like mystery when it comes to life. There are some things we do not know and some things we do not understand. And God made it that way. You say, well, I'm okay with life being a mystery. Think of all the things we do in America to take the mystery out of life. People spend millions of dollars on horoscopes. Millions of dollars on trying to go find somebody to tell them what's going to happen in life. We try to go out and destroy the mystery or diminish the ministry. Uh, You know, the Bible says that life is about being a cliffhanger. James tells us, who are you to brag or plan on what you're going to do tomorrow? You you may not even have tomorrow. You see, what comes after this moment is a mystery to us. And somewhere along the line, Christians have got to embrace the mystery of the moments. We've got to recognize it. I love Gilda Radner, who was a former Saturday Night Live member and uh, not a a great deep theologian in her own mind, the late Gilda Radner, but she wrote something in her autobiography that just jumped out at me. Why don't you listen to what she said? She said, when I started out, I wanted a perfect life, but now I have learned the hard way that some poems don't rhyme and some stories don't have a clear beginning, a clear middle, and a clear end because life is about not knowing. Life is about having to change. Life is about taking the moment and making the most out of it without knowing what's going to happen next. You see, when we trust that God is in control, and if He's in control, then we need to embrace the mystery. How much time do we worry about what might or might not happen tomorrow? How much energy do we expel uh, about thinking about all the things that are bad that are out there that could happen to us that may never happen? You see, if we begin to enjoy that life is a mystery and that God is in control and that God has a plan and he has a specific plan for us, we might not get so upset when things don't work out the way we want them. Because, see, we all have our plans, and sometimes when our plans don't work, God is overriding it with his plan. And instead of seeing that and recognizing that, we get mad. That's what happened to the early church. Gentiles began to get saved, and the Jewish Christians said, time out. That's not our plan. We don't want them to be a part, or they can be a part, but they've got to do this and this and this to be a part of the Jewish custom, and then they can be a Christian. And Paul came along and said, you missed it. This mystery has been revealed. God has a bigger plan than yours. Listen to me, church. Life is a mystery, and sometimes we just need to embrace it. For some of us, it's the only way you're going to really enjoy today, to let your hands go and take your hands off and know that God is in control. The second thing that jumped out that's right after that is if life is a mystery, then we have to trust that God will reveal to us what we need when we need it. What if in in Genesis, God would have come to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and said, Abraham, here's my plan. You're going to be my people. I'm going to bless you and you're going to bless me and you're going to serve me. But that's only going to happen for about 4,000 years. 
Then I'm going to switch over to another plan. You see, I'm going to send my son to come and down a cross, and all of those sacrificial gifts that you were giving now will be fulfilled in this plan. You think Abraham would have been, okay, good. That's a good plan, God. He wouldn't have known what to do with it. You see, God knows what's best for us. And, and what would happen to our life if God told us everything right now? How miserable would we be? Wouldn't we? But God knows when you need, what you need. And if you trust him and you embrace the mystery, then you recognize that anything that you need for today, God's going to show you. He's going to lead you. He's going to guide you. And whatever comes tomorrow, he's going to guide you there too. You just have to trust him. I mean, what, what would your life be like today if, if you knew that you were going to lose your job two years from now? Or you knew about a death in your family, a spouse or a child, or even your own death was going to happen at a certain date. How would you live the rest of your life? I told us before, Christianity is not about ever getting somewhere. We know where we're going. It's about living abundantly and intimately with Jesus Christ in the in-between. And when you begin to embrace the mystery and you begin to understand that God has a bigger plan and I may not figure it out ever on this side of heaven, then all of a sudden you can begin to relax, take your hands off of it, and trust Him. You know why? Because God has a plan. And, and whatever God tells you to do in this mystery, whatever He tells you will never contradict what His Word is. That's how you know whether it's God or not. Because you see, as a new day comes and God begins to reveal the mystery of that day, He's always going to tell you that stuff that's consistent with His Word. Because God's will is always found in God's Word. He's not going to tell you to do something that's contradictory to that. See, you can go back and read what, what Paul is saying is not contradictory to the Old Testament. It fulfills it. It doesn't replace it. It fulfills it. And all along, if you study, you can see glimpses of it, glimpses of God trying to reveal what his plan was. But they couldn't handle it at that point. And so finally, Jesus' death on the cross, even then the apostles still struggled with it until Jesus came back and began to explain it to them. Why do you think Jesus said over and over again, as it has been written, as it has been written, as it has been written? Because he's trying to help them understand that this plan was a long-term plan. This mystery has been revealed. See, life is a mystery. God will reveal what we need when we get there. And what he reveals will always be consistent with his word. And then last thing. And this is the underscoring part of everything Paul says in Ephesians. And if you don't hear anything else, hear this. This mystery of life that God has given us, this grace, wonderful, abundant-filled life that God gives us is meant to be lived in community. We weren't created to live this incredible mystery all alone. There's nothing you can find in Scripture that says you can follow Christ and be a part of Him and not be a part of the body. Because you see, when you become a part of Him, you become a part of the body. And that's why I told you that, that you've got to find your place that fit. Because when you fit, that's your place. 